Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our weekly Exploring the Parsha class with Rabbi Rebecca Schatz and Rabbi Matt Shapiro. I don't think that I ever realized that so much of what we talk about when we just reference back to the story of Moses or just Exodus in general, so much of that is actually just in this week's Parsha, right? As soon as we leave this week's Parsha, there aren't as many of those kind of token moments. There are a few, but not as many of those token moments that we that we often come back to. And so it's it's kind of chaval that they're all in one uh, one Parsha. But anyway... Continue. We're not going to talk about any of those. We're not going to talk about any of them. So, uh, okay. We're going to pick up in chapter four. The Israelites have been enslaved. There is a new Pharaoh. Um, We meet this guy called Moses. We hear about uh, sort of his origin story. We hear about him uh, fleeing. We are even picking up post burning bush, the call from God for him to go and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Again, like this is this is a, a big fast forward on all of this. God identifies Ehiyah, Asher Ehiyah, the God of his fathers. None of this, we're, we're, we're skipping all, we're skipping all of that. So basically the first, uh, the first hour of every movie you've ever seen about, uh, about this, this uh, narrative. We're going to pick up in chapter four. Moses is still going back and forth, still uh, isn't, has, has real ambivalence about his role. Um, God shows him some signs and wonders, turning his rod into uh, a snake and um, turning his hand uh, leprous um, as an indicator of the, the, the power um, and, and the signs that he'll be able to show the people to get them on board with what Moshe is bringing to them um, and saying, even if those don't work, you can turn the Nile into blood. M- Moses still isn't convinced, right? Moses, Moses still isn't really on board with this. God, I'm not a man of words. We hear about Moses's stutter. G- uh, God uh, doesn't really buy that argument, I think it's fair to say, um, and says, uh, too bad, go anyway. And Moshe is is now just very simply says in verse 13, I really don't want to go. Please have anyone else go. And God gets God gets very angry. And, and the concept of um, anger and frustration is going to show up in the piece that we're going to, we're going to be looking at. So it's, it's interesting to me that this kind of starts getting foregrounded a little bit here. God's upset. And he says, okay, fine. You don't want to speak. Fine. Aharon will meet you and he can speak for you. Right. I'll, I'll put the word, right. You will speak, uh, to him and he will be the one who will share them, uh, to, to the people. You really don't want to be the one who says the words. Fine. He'll be the one who says them to the people, but you still need to do this. This is still the job that you have to do. Okay. Verse 18, Moshe goes to uh, his father-in-law, here Yeter, not Yitro, but his father-in-law in the narrative, um, and says, what? So later on in that verse. Uh-huh. Right. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, uh, Moses goes and says, I got to go. And Yitro says, all right. I incidentally also kind of read this as, as Moshe hoping for like one more out 
right? That like Yitro will say, sorry, no, you can't go. And then you can go to God and be like, sorry, my father-in-law won't, won't let me go. Um, and then still, right? It's clear that between verses 18 and 19, Moshe still hasn't gone, right? God is still saying to Moshe, you need to go, right? Even if you're afraid the folks who might have um, wanted to take retribution on you for killing the taskmaster, they aren't around anymore, right? You, you need to go. So now we're getting into, into what we're really going to be looking at. Moshe takes his, um, oh, my battery is running low. Hold on one second. Take things that you don't need to worry about when you're just teaching a class in person for 800. Okay, there we go. Um, Moshe takes his wife and sons, puts them on the donkey. They go down to Egypt and he takes the staff as well. God starts laying out what's going to be happening in a little more detail. You're going to perform the, the signs that I've, I have showed you, but Pharaoh will, will, uh, will strengthen, stiffen, harden his heart. So we won't let the people go. Um, and, and here it's, it's, we're going to be focusing not in on these verses, but, but they kind of, not like foreshadow, but they anticipate what's coming next a little bit. Um, You'll say to Pharaoh, um, Israel is my is God's firstborn son, and I, God, have said to you, let my son go, that he, Israel, may worship me, God, but you refuse to let him go, and I will slay your firstborn son. Pause. That is everything leading up to what we're actually going to be focusing in on. Rabbi Shots, anything you want to add? That was a that was a little more in depth than we usually do on the background, but. But like, there's a lot of narrative to to catch up on to get us where we're going. Anything you want to add before we focus? Anything to add? I think that we'll probably need to go back to those two verses, like yeah, yeah, yeah. with context. But no, not for okay. Now. Great. Now here's the weird part. Um, verse twenty. So we're going to be focusing in. If you're following along, we're going to be focusing on chapter four, verses twenty-four, twenty-five, twenty-six. And he was. On the way in an encampment, right? A place of lodging. And God met him. God encountered him and sought to kill him. And Sipora took, took a flint, took a sharp stone, and, and cut off her son's foreskin. And she touched his legs with it. And she said, for you are indeed a chatan damim, a bridegroom of blood, whatever that might mean, to me. And he left him alone. Az amra chatan damim lamulot. And she added uh, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Just as a quick show of hands, how many folks have looked at these verses before? Alan, Jay, a little bit. Oh, Nancy's got a big smile on her face. Okay, Denise as well. Great. So there's there's a, not a big smile on her face and a big shake of the head from Nancy. Um, Denise as well. Okay, so folks have looked at these verses a little bit before. Um, great. Rabbi Shetz, do you want to, do you want to go right into Yeah, before you say more about them? Um, can I say one thing? Can I say one thing? I won't say anything. 
I just want people to be able to ask questions before you before you say anything. Okay, can you stop sharing your screen so that, oh no, we want people to be able to see them. Sorry, we haven't done this in a long time. Okay, um, can, so, okay. So we are going to focus, for those, most of you have been with us before, but some a few of you haven't for a while. So what we're gonna do is focus in on these three verses specifically. And you are going to ask questions. Um, you can make comments too, but mostly questions about just these three verses. No other verses, just these three verses. And questions can be about specific words, what is happening, conjugations of words, if you can read the Hebrew, um, that uh, that specifically, whatever you would like, raise your hand. I can see most of you, uh, and and we will take as many questions as you have. And, and we'll sort of harvest those questions, and then we'll dive into some answers after we've gotten a nice bumper crop of questions. And Rabbi Schatz is going to answer. All. <laughs> okay, Alan. Oh wait, mute, unmute first though. Okay. There you go. What is uh, the relationship between being a um, a bridegroom in the marriage and circumcision in terms and the emphasis on blood. Mm, mm, great question, fantastic. Yeah, Jay. Who is him? Yes, great. My question as well. <laughs> who is him? We don't know who him is, and it's all very. It's, it's, yeah, it's very unspecific um, because also we use usually male form of conjugations for God, but if we don't read the English translation, we don't know if the he is Moses, if the he is another kid, if the he is God, we have no idea. Renee. So was the circumcision and the, the blood, was that what protected him from being killed by Hashem? I, I kind of was thinking of even like the blood that got the, put on the doorposts right? And, that, and how that prevented the Jews from being killed, like that kind of thing. Great. Beautiful. Um, so what, how is the blood similar to kind of the last piece of Alan's question, right? What is the, what is the blood connected to? What's the significance here of, of the blood? And is it the thing that, that keeps him alive if the hymn is Moses, right? Back to Jay's question of who's the hymn. Yeah, Denise, did you have a question? Why would God want to kill Moses yeah. when he's finally doing what he asked him to do? Right, right, exactly. Yeah, we've. I finally got you on the road, dude. Why are why why now would I turn back and decide to kill you? So maybe the hymn is not Moses, and maybe the hymn is another hymn. Yeah, Barbara. I agree about the hymn that Jay mentioned and, and you mentioned in the first sentence. But in the thir third sentence, who's the him there? Yeah. He, he is God, right? He left him alone. Did he leave the baby alone without his mother? And then the mother adds, she added, again, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. I, that's whole, that's very, the whole thing is confusing to me. It's How many hymns do we have here? Right. There's a lot of hymns. And the way that Rabbi Shapiro translated it actually was he didn't say God. He just used the word him because it's not clear. JPS translates it with a big H for he. But there's actually nothing that says that that's God. It just says that he, this he, uh, let, left him alone. So we don't know who the him is and we don't know who the he is. So it's possible that it's God, but because 
because we know that there is this element of God going after a someone, but it's possible that it's not even God to begin with. So you're right, Barbara. There are a lot of hymns, and we don't know who any of the hymns are here. Yeah, Nancy. So why would it be necessary to say a bridegroom of love because of the circumcision? Why, why bring it up again? Right. He has already been left alone. Why is this even necessary? Right, right. And and was there other kinds of blood that we needed to now say, no, 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 that blood was because of the blood of circumcision, right? Like, how 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 much bridegroom blood could have been happening between verse, verse 25 and 26, right? Why do we have to repeat it? And as we've talked about many times in this class, the Torah is not redundant just to be redundant. So there must have been a reason for this to be written there. And why would that have been? Bonnie, I think you had your hand up. So what is Tipora's role in this? Why was she doing it? And did someone tell her to, or was this something that was done? Right. Right. Yeah. Why? Where does Tipora? Where does Tipora come from in this whole moment? Right. Like we, we were we were just talking about Moses and God, and then all of a sudden Tipora is coming out of nowhere to circumcise people. Right. It's just it's a very bizarre thing that she takes this on um, all of a sudden. Rabbi Shapiro, your screen just went dark, so I don't know what happened there. Um, oh, oh. Okay. Uh, any other questions, Kushiot, about the verses? Okay. Yeah, Renee. Was, uh, I, I asked Rabbi Shapiro, was Sipor considered the first Mohel? <laughs> oh, man. What a question. Um, so that question actually no pun intended, bleeds into my, my interest of this verse, which is only until very recently, Rabbi Klickfeld's sister being one of the first, women were not allowed to be the ones to circumcise because the law from the Torah is on the father. So the fact that she circumcised her own child can that be seen as breach milah, or is it just circumcision? Like, like there are many people in the world who are circumcised who are not Jews, right? So is it possible that she, both a woman and a non-Jew, obviously there's not Jews at this time, but a non-Hebrew, right, is circumcising their son? What does that do for... Um, for the mitzvah of circumcision as we know it. And as Nancy's pointing out, there are mohelets now, but that is super new. So she she is not considered the first moyle by any stretch of the imagination um, by anybody. But when we think about how far our world has come, could we go back and think of her as such? Sure. She also could be seen as like a potentially in that world, like a midwife or a, um, a nursemaid or any of those kinds of things that, that they had back then, uh, that women were doing more regularly. Um, Rabbi Shapiro, you're, you're making us all a little bit nauseous. Is every, what's happening over there? You're gone. Okay. Rabbi Shapiro has left, left the building, um, which is hysterical because he said to me yesterday, what, what happens if I don't come to class and you're stuck with these verses? And I said, I'll change the verses. Um, anyway, so so one of the things that I read about before Rabbi Shapiro um, 
comes back is, I forget now who it was who mentioned this, but the connection between all the different kinds of blood that saved the people throughout this story of Exodus. So there's the blood on the doorpost, there's the blood as one of the plagues, and then this is the first accounting of blood that somehow is saving this him that we don't know who the him is. And it could be that the him is Moses. It could be that the him is Moses's son. And I know that Rabbi Shapiro is going to bring in a source about how the rabbis discuss that Moses didn't circumcise his son up until this point. And why not? Right? Why, why if he knew of Abraham and all these other um, uh, ancestors who circumcised their sons and knowing that that was now part of the, uh, the commitment to, to the, I don't want to say religion, but to the people, um, how come this was something that he didn't do at eight days, right? This was much further along in this child's life than eight days. And the last thing I'll say, and then I'll pass it over to Rabbi Shapiro, is that the, um, the connection here between the blood of the circumcision versus where we see circumcision before in our Torah, those places are not, do not, do not mention blood, are not considered blood related to circumcision. Now, anybody who knows anything about halachic circumcision in today's world, blood is a very big part of it. Not, doesn't have to be a bloody mess, but there needs to be some amount of blood for the circumcision to be part of that covenant, part of that breach. So the fact that when Abraham circumcises his child and they don't mention blood in the Torah, it's very interesting that now that we are talking about a different kind of circumcision, again, not done by the father and done by a non-Hebrew, we do mention blood and that's kind of the main focus. So we could write a lot of drashot about why that is and what that does for how we think about circumcision today. But interesting that it's the first time that blood is connected to circumcision. Um, Rabbi Shapiro, I mentioned to all of them that you, you told me that you might, if you didn't make it, what would I do and that I would change the verses. So you're back. <laughs> you haven't changed the verse. We're still on it. Um, but, but feel free to now share your pieces because I shared while you were. Um, my my computer exploded a little bit, so I got kind of distracted again. Twenty twenty one off to uh, a fantastic start. Um, I'm trying to to get my computer up and running. I'm currently on my phone, which is uh, suboptimal for looking at stuff. Um, I, I guess what one of the things um, that's uh, like I'll I'll zoom way out for a second. I was talking about this with Rabbi Schatz. Um, I, I I just I find it so um, fascinating in terms of of the story itself and how it's clearly like 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 a fragment, right? It's it's not a whole story, and and we see that I think in terms of. Uh, the, the ample antecedents without a clear proper noun, right? The he and the him and the he did what to who. Um, and it just seems like there, there's more there, which um, on the one hand might be like, well, you know, okay, well, there's not much there. On the other hand, it's like, oh, well, 
we, we know this is being included for for some reason. So so what's what's the reason here? Um, on its face, you know, in, in a more literal sense, I think you can say, well, it's, it's a narrative about the primacy of circumcision and how important that is, you know, in the in the role of ancient Israelite peoplehood. Um, and I think there's also some really fascinating questions about obligation and relationship and family um, and all of that kind of stuff. Rabbi Shef, I don't know if you mentioned this while, while my technology was exploding. Um, Sipora is almost never mentioned in the Torah, right? This, this is by far the most active thing she does over the course of the whole Torah. We hear very little about her. And it's Davka, this, this was when I was glitching in and out, but I, but I think I was hearing this. You know, this is Davka, a role that is traditionally specifically for for not her, right? That it, that that whichever son it is, and we don't even know if it's Gershom or Aliezer, right? We don't even know which son it is. But whichever one it is, it <laughs> it's supposed to be for Moshe to do it and, and not Zipporah. Um, and I think that that's... Um, that that's really interesting. And also how did the Rabbi Schatz, have you talked about the, the snake eating? eating? No, do you want to, do you want to, do you want to, you, you seem to really, to really like that, that, that part. Do you want to talk about the snake consuming the child and, and all of that good stuff? No. You really, <laughs> there, there's a question of um, how, how did Zipporah even know what to do? Right, she's not an Israelite. How did how did this sort of? And even if she was an Israelite, right? Like, I I am Jewish, and I don't know how to do a circumcision, right? Like, it doesn't. No, but I'm saying I'm saying even even one step even one step beyond that, right? Like like not even to do the circumcision, but how did she know that that the circumcision was the issue? Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Right. How, how, like all of a sudden it seems like they're being attacked and like, wait, what's happening? And, huh, and, and what do we do here? Um, the, there's, it, it, it's um, refracted in a different way through, I think Renee, you're the one who made the comment about um, you made the connection between some of what's going on here and um, what happens in, in the actual Exodus part of the Exodus narrative, right? That, um, the resonance of blood and being saved um, is being connected with what happens the last night in Egypt and placing the blood of the lamb on the, on the doorposts of the Israelites. And I think sort of with whichever way it goes in the story, right. Whatever happened, what, whatever part of the narrative came first or second and, and what fragment or, or piece is older or, or newer, it, it's pretty clear to me that there is a resonance there. There's also this fascinating midrash that talks about. Let me. I'm, I'm, I'm scrambling around my papers a little bit because because I got all kerfuffle. Here we go. Okay. And I, I this is breaking my promise to Rabbi Schatz because I told Rabbi Schatz when I was reading more than one uh, sentence at a time I was going to share my screen, but I can't do it because I'm on my phone now. I'm sorry, Rabbi Schatz. Um, so this, th there's a, a midrash that says, um, right, the person under threat of death was the boy, right? It's not clear because of the uh, playtime with antecedents who's actually under threat, but that 
that the there's an angel, it's not actually God, but it's an angel, assumes the form of a serpent who's about to swallow the boy. The serpent then spit out the boy and began to devour him from the opposite end, swallowing up to the part where the circumcision was about what was supposed to be performed, right? So the way, <laughs> the way that Sipporah knows what to do is because there is an angel who transforms into a serpent who then half eats her son and then half eats her son the other way. So therefore, that's how she knows what she needs to do in order to call the attack off. You know, that's a pretty normal midrash. Um, but it, it clearly comes to, to try to answer the question of how did she know what to do? There's a resonance there with, with one snake story that we know well, and I saw this comment in terms of what happens in Gan Eden, but it only occurred to me just now as we were um, reading the verses coming up to it, the other role of a snake in the story, which is Moses' staff turning into a snake. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't have like more of a connected thought on that yet, but, well, but it's, it, it's, it's interesting that like that Midrash shows up there, like Davka in response to sort of a, a question around something that, um, that's clearly a question. Yeah, go ahead. Interesting, that's okay. And interesting that, that that verse a few a few verses ago um, says that like it, it very much points out that Moses was bringing his his wife his children and the rod of God right and I always I've always wondered like why point that out you didn't point out his favorite pillow that he also brought so why, <laughs> why are you telling us about this stick and it's interesting that the rabbis then pick up on that because that's the same rod that turns into that snake yep i don't agree with otherwise but i do think that piece is interesting yeah barbara i just want to point out that according to rashi it was eliezer that was the one that was yes. circumcised yeah it doesn't say what happened with the other boy but rashi felt that it was eliezer Right, right. Yeah, most of the rabbis seem to think that that's who it was, um, probably because he he had not been yet. And so in terms of just, you know, figuring out which which uh, son would it be, you would start with the one who who was born first um, and who therefore would have needed to be circumcised first. Um, yeah. Oh, Alan. Yeah. Why circumcise only one son? Why not circumcise both sons if, right. if that's going to be the requirement? Right, exactly. So, so I found a really interesting comment to that, that that said, you know, Yitro, a lot of times in rabbinic literature, I mean, in in the shot narrative of the story, it's clear that Yitro is, is like a, a positive force. And he's talked about very highly in a lot of rabbinic literature as well. There's a piece that I found in prepping for today, and I'd never seen this before, that said um, that Yitro basically made uh, made a deal with Moshe, um, saying that um, when Moses said to Yitro, give me your daughter Tipor as wife, Yitro answered, if you do what I ask of you, I will give her to you as wife. Moses said, what do you ask? Yitro said, your first son must serve idolatry. All others will be for God. So Alan, that, that, right, that's to your question about why, why not both? Um, what's, and that, the, that, what, what's the source of that? Midrash? That's, out, that's out of the Mechilta. 
Um, so it, it's, it's a, it's definitely counter to like the, the flavor of how we usually see vitro present in our texts. Um, I don't know if like the motivation behind that is specifically in response to the question you're asking, which is, yeah, I mean, I think one of the many questions about these two came, um, or, or if addressing a, a, another point, um, midrashically, but, but yeah, I think, I think it's, um, definitely a question about why just, why just one and not both that there's also, um, commentators who say that it's, it's just because of the timing, right. That they were traveling, when Eliezer was eight days old and that Moshe was prioritizing getting back to Egypt quickly, or he didn't want to circumcise Eliezer while they were traveling because he was concerned about health risks. And so rabbis, you'll see this, this um, story brought up in a couple of different places in rabbinic texts, like saying, this is how important it is for a circumcision to take place on the eighth day that even Moshe um, should have prioritized this and didn't and and look at what happened that that he didn't um which is an interesting way of framing the narrative um i do you have another thing to share Rabbi Shapiro? i mean i have lots of things to share but that was the end of that thought so um i when we were discussing the circumcision piece of this which again i i am i'm very fascinated by uh, the fact that, and I think Alan, you're the one who mentioned this, like, how did she even know that circumcision was going to be the thing to do, right? Why, why not, like, I don't know, draw some blood from his forearm? Like, how, how do you, how do you know that circumcision is... Or draw blood at all. Or draw blood at all, right? It seems like blood is something that she knows to do, but yeah, sure. Um, and, and it's interesting that that when we talk about circumcision, that often because the mitzvah is on the father for the child, we often forget that while talking about it, not in the moment, obviously, we often forget that it's a very hard moment for the mother um, because she's just given birth. There's lots of hormones going through her own body uh, and to watch her child or children in Rabbi Shapiro's case um, have to be circumcised is, is really difficult. And I was mentioning to Rabbi Shapiro that it's interesting that we're talking about this this week because one of the conversations that I've had a lot in the past uh, months that we've been in this COVID experience um, has been around how to do circumcision safely and how to do it in wow. such a way that it is halachic, but also done without exposure and, and allowing people to feel like it's still... Um, right, right? Like they're, they're, they're doing it the right way, but that they can get around kind of the safety uh, concerns. And often I hear that from the mothers, not from the fathers. And that's not a sexist comment. I just, I think that often, often the mothers don't, don't speak up to the bris needing to happen because it's a hard thing to have to think about. Um, but in this case, I've heard a lot from mothers of how can I how can I do this differently so that my child, I know I'm going to do it, but how can I do it differently so that my child is going to be safe? And in some cases, I've heard from mothers that they don't want to circumcise their child during this time. Uh, and, and so it just, it, I, 
I had never focused as much on Brit Milah in accordance to the way that we think about it um, halachically in terms of the mother. And both this story and also just real life experience brought so much of that kind of to the foreground of my mind most recently. And what I think is really interesting about what Sipora does is she cuts off the foreskin and then she touches it to his legs. And first of all, I, I, why? I don't, I don't know why that would be necessary. But I wonder if there's something, if there's something there about needing that connection to be had with the child, even in that moment, right? What you hear from people most often is, I don't, I don't want to circumcise my child because I don't want to make that choice for them. Um, that's an argument that I often heard when I was working in Northern California, and that that's that's real for people that's a real feeling and I wonder if her doing that but then you know as we all know with babies you you try to try to stimulate them by touching you know the bottom of their feet to get them to wake up or you blow in their face to get them to open their eyes or you know whatever it is we do funny things to babies that we don't do to um to grown humans uh to try to stimulate them and i wonder if this was a part of her trying to get her child to recognize what she was trying to do to save him and to save his father um so all of that is me i didn't find that in any uh in any commentaries or anything like that but i i do think it's an interesting way of looking at the story yes barbara Although I think it should be said that it's way more humane to do it to an eight-day-old eight baby than to a 10-year-old boy or an 18-year-old man. Uh, you, you really couldn't pick a better time to do it than when they're a baby. They get over it rapidly. Yeah. Uh, it's really not a big deal at that point, but it's a big deal when you're a little older. Yeah, no, I, I, I personally, Rebecca Schatz, agree with you. Um, and there are people who who feel very strongly about allowing a person, at that point, a baby, um, to be able to choose how they deal with their own bodies without someone else choosing for them, even though when, when they're a baby. So, though I agree with you that once, and when I've spoken to families about this, you know, why eight days? Why do I have to choose this for my child? Um, one of the things that I do mention is, can you imagine if at 12 years old, when you talk to your child about a bar mitzvah, you have to also talk about having surgery on a part of his body that he's, he's already grappling with at 12 years old. So it, if that kind of brings, brings it home in terms of why eight days and, and how to do it. So I, I totally agree with you and, um, and just... There are lots of opinions out there, especially about things that, that are permanent decisions that they are making for other people. I think, part, I mean, as, as someone who's been it th thrice as a parent. Um, That's a fun word. It is a fun word. It, it's incredibly difficult. Um, I, I, I've also heard people make the argument of, I don't want to make that choice for my child. I, I make choices for my children all the time. Right. So that's the thing that you like, 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 I, like they, they don't choose where we live. They don't choose where we go to school. They don't choose what we're having for dinner. Right. Like, right. They also like, don't choose if they have a cough, what medicine you give them. Right. And that's the one that I usually, that I usually right. care because 
people decide, you know, medical. When when Jonah when Jonah needed to have his adenoids removed and he was six years old, we didn't say Jonah, you're never gonna have your adenoids again. How do you feel about right. that? Right? Like, like that that wasn't a conversation we had with him. Yeah. But but I think the, the concern is legitimate, but I think it comes down to, I don't want to see my child in pain and I don't want there to be blood. And this is a right. difficult thing, right. um, which yes, co- correct. Um, I, I, I think Aura is so easy. Like she just takes a really sharp rock and like, you know, it's, it's interesting that, that it's such an easy thing for her to go about for all the reasons that you're we saying. We don't know that it's easy. Right? We don't know what her emotional experience is. Right. And, and I think, and I, and I think also when, when we find ourselves in extreme circumstances, we also take actions that we might not take yeah. otherwise. Right. If you were, if Sipora was sitting in your office, Rabbi shot six months pre- pregnant with her husband, Mo, and you were, and you were talking with her about, right, what, what a Brit Mila might look like for her kid. That's one thing to be anticipating it. It's another thing entirely to be like, oh my God, something is attacking my kid. How do I get it to stop? Right. That, that's a, that's a completely different. Experience. Yeah. But I guess we're also then we are answering that question of who the him is by Correct. saying it's, by saying it's the son for which, okay. I mean, then the circumcision, I guess, makes sense. But if the him in that first sentence is Moses, yeah. Then, still, like, hope, hope, uh, hopefully, she cares about her husband. That you know, I don't know. For sure, for sure. But why? But why is the circumcision of her son going to going to say? Uh, yep. Yeah. Yeah, Jay, you just have to unmute. Yeah. Um, I I started thinking more and more about the question of who the him was in that yeah. first verse, and I was looking back at the text the line before talked about the um, Pharaoh's firstborn. Yes. So it made me question whether that was the person, the him that they were talking about in that. Yeah. So I'll let, I'm sure Rabbi Shapiro has something to say about this. So I'll just, I'll add a quick little piece that I saw from our rabbis. Based on that verse that you read is how they get to thinking that the him might not be, Pharaoh's son, but but might be Moses's son, which is why that circumcision happens. So interesting that it could have been could have been Pharaoh's son, or it could have been that because we know that the firstborn of Egyptians, including Pharaoh's son, are going to be destroyed, that that connection then is made between Moses and Zipporah deciding we need to save our own firstborn and make sure that he's circumcised. For the for the reasons that we see um, are going to happen to the Egyptian first firstborns. Yeah, yeah. I, I, there's there's a lot of comments um, made by the rabbis. It's always a fascinating thing when the rabbis go about the business of like, oh yeah, this is the order the verses are in in the Torah, but that's not the order that they really happened in, right? Like that's always a good tell that there's like something funky happening. Um, and they do that a lot with these verses, right? They're like, oh, well, verse, it should have been closer to verse 20. And then, to, right, but Jay, I think it's it's an astute comment because a phrase about killing a firstborn son heading right into this narrative doesn't seem to be an accident, yeah. right? That, that, that seems literarily to make a lot of sense. And, and particularly if you think about the, the chapter writ large, 
right? Which, which is as Moshe continues to be reluctant and reluctant and reluctant and God showing Moshe time and again, this is the power that I have and this is what you need to do. Um, I don't think that's an accident here, right? That Moshe has been resistant and resistant and, and, and God says, I'm going to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. And then the next verse is about an attack happening to Moshe's son. Like you can interpolate that pretty easily in terms of understanding, like God is showing Moshe that like, yes, I have this level of power, right? Th- this is the amount of power that I have. And that's not a theology that I like. <laughs> that's not a theology that I'm comfortable with, but I don't think, I mean, the Another narrative that this has resonance with, I think, is the Akedah, yeah. right? Like, like you can very easily sort of connect some narrative thread in terms of Avraham and Moshe and what's being asked of them and what's happening to them um, and how all that plays out here. Um, Rabbi Dove Linzer has, has an interesting comment on that, that that I can share in a moment. But just to, to sort of bring bring this thought um, to a close, I think it's interesting in a chapter that goes through multiple iterations of God showing Moshe the, the power that he has. Um, I, I think it's interesting to see how how that how that plays out narratively. And yet, um, Moshe still doesn't do anything. It's Sephora. Well, right. again, we don't know who's being attacked. We don't know what's happening, right? Like we don't. But but in, in your comment of, and then I'll call on Rebecca, but in your comment of, you know, all these things are happening and he that all of a sudden becomes fearful, like he's still not the guy who does anything. Right. It's his wife, which is really fascinating given, given if you were seeing all of this happening and you were scared, I would expect you to do something about it not expect your wife to do something about but, it but also so i know rebecca you're waiting the, the, the other thing that that pinged in my head just now and i've never thought about this before is there's such a strong midrashic t- tradition of how when um the israelites were slaves in egypt that it was because of the women who kept the people going right that that husbands didn't want to be in a situation where they'd be putting their kids in slavery and it was the women who made sure that procreation would continue and there would continue to be people and that's also a really interesting thread um yeah. to connect into this story as well in terms of that thematic resonance going back the other way with a midianite woman who's performing a circumcision to ensure that that family continues to be able to sustain those families who only continue because of the women um right. yeah rebecca <laughs> Other Rebecca, not shots, Rebecca. I would have called on myself. <laughs> I don't know. It's a new year. We're trying new things. Um, I wanted to mention two things. First of all, with regard to the circumcision and the mom and the dad, from my experience, my husband found it much more difficult, mm-hmm. the, the apprehension before. And I think it is related to the biology of that. It's not... Um, so it could be that it is easier for a mom to do it mm, yeah. just for that reason. Yeah. The other thing is, and I hope I didn't, while I was looking this up, I hope it wasn't mentioned already, but um, I think it's also interesting that uh, there's the blood and the firstborn. And then when the Israelites leave Egypt, they are also, they're supposed to put blood, not of their firstborn, but of a, I guess a lamb or on the on the door so that their firstborn is saved so there's another link there to the blood and the firstborn yeah there's something about blood 
as protection in this story, but also blood as um, as destruction by way of protection, right? If you if you think of the plagues as being a way for the the Israelites to get closer and closer and closer to freedom, the idea of the water turning to blood or even the killing of the firstborn, which we don't hear blood in association with, but we could imagine. I meant that they had to, they had to take blood and put it on their door frame yeah. Yeah, so yeah. that their skip. No, no, I, know. I was, yeah. I was getting there, but oh. then, but that all of these pieces, right, are all about blood and they're all about that protection, which you pointed out is the end result is that you put blood on your doorpost to actually say, this is, this is a home that you don't have to, that you don't have to come to and shed blood, right? That the blood becomes the protection for, for the people inside it. Um, and, we should we should attach the piece that Dove Linzer wrote because he connects the death of the firstborn, the Akedah, um, the this scene that we're in right now, and um, oh, so can I? I'll, I'll just, can I just share this excerpt? Yeah, so do you have the link, or do you want me to? Post yeah, it? I can. Or, I mean, if you want to find the link and put it in the chat, yeah. while I'm, I mean, it's it's a wonderful piece. Um, Rabbi Dovlinzer, who teaches at Yeshivat Chovei Torah, who both Rabbi Shatz and I have had, what? Rosh, Rosh Yeshiva. Oh, excuse me, excuse me. Um, who both Rabbi Shatz and I have had the pleasure from, of learning from, just a, a brilliant scholar and a wonderful teacher. Um, the whole piece is worth reading it in its entirety, but this is uh, uh, an excerpt from it. Um, Akedah is an extreme circumcision circumcision is a symbolic or reenacted akedah. The letting of blood, the cutting of one's child, and I'm bracketing the critically important question of why it is sons and not daughters, is the act of bringing one's son into the covenant with God. It is how we symbolically sacrifice our children, how we give what is most precious to us to God. And I, I think that to me is a really interesting um, phrase um, that, that, that pings for me when we think about this narrative. It is thus how we give ourselves to God, and it is how we give our children to God. We do not destroy life in the service of God. Our sacrifice, the cutting and spilling of the blood of the circumcision, is the dedicating of a life to the service of God, right? That, that when we think about what is most precious to us and where, and where that ultimately comes from, right? Like it, it is not, I, I, I am not in control of life and death. None of us are. Um, I am not control of who comes into the world and who leaves this world. Um, I'm, I'm grateful to be blessed with kids and I'm grateful that in this moment they're healthy and well and thank God for that. But, you know, there, there is, there are few things that make me more grateful for and more aware of how tenuous life is that when I really look at and think about my kids, you know, uh, particularly when they're such tiny little babies um, and, and to mark literally that in some way and to recognize that. Um, and it, it's, it's such a, it's such a difficult ritual and it is such a painful ritual. It, it really is. Um, I, I would never like sugarcoat how difficult Brit Mila is for anyone. Um, but, but to me, there, there also is a real power, power to it, both because of how, how, how far back it stretches and that, that link of generations, um, that, that it holds for us. And also sort of giving a container for 
recognizing that difficult but important truth of how we um, are not ultimately in control and recognizing how much of parenting is out of our control, out of my control, to be sure. Although you haven't heard my kids scream today. That's probably because Sarah's with them and she's a wonderful mother. Um, but um, how much is out of, out of my control and, um, and, and, coming, and coming to touch with that. So it's a wonderful piece. You should read all of it. Um, but that paragraph in particular really spoke to me as, as providing a lens through which we can look at these verses. Any other thoughts or comments? Yeah, Nancy. Sorry. Um, still the words bridegroom of blood. Um, I don't know. It, it, confusing, disturbing. Yep. I don't, I'm not, I don't really know that I have anything to say to that other than I, <laughs> um, I read a piece in a non-Jewish piece about how the circumcision was somehow like a wedding, like a, like a, a covenantal, um, joining together of the family and of her with her child because I'm only mentioned it was a non-Jewish piece because it's not really how we believe. Uh, like we don't believe that if you just circumcise your child, all of a sudden you're part of the covenant. Yet you have to be a Jewish child and those kinds of things to, to make it actually work. Um, so yeah, well, it's interesting, Elon, that you say that because I've never watched um, Game of Thrones, but wasn't there a whole thing about no, no one else watched it. I mean, I watched it. I don't, there was a lot in there. I don't remember a specific like circumcision wedding. No, 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 no circumcision, no circumcision. Oh. <laughs> That'd be a lot even for Game of Thrones. Um, no, I thought there was a bridegroom piece. No, you're whistling instead of listening. Okay, anyway. I'm whistling the theme, it was the theme. Was the oh, theme. got it. Um, yeah, I don't have super much to say so, about that. So I... I found a piece, it, it, it's also not by like, it's not a rabbinic source, but it, but it's someone who sort of is looking at like ancient Near Eastern civilization. Um, and he said, uh, Walter Belts, I don't know anything about Walter Belts, but this was his comment. It's like the closest thing I can find to understanding what that phrase might mean. Um, the mother, uh, so <laughs> if you go back into the verses, and you see whose whose legs were touched. She says it's actually God's or the angel's legs who were touched, right? That that it's not the son, it's not Moshe. That there's the circumcision, and she takes the foreskin and touches it to the legs, anthropomorphized of of the divine being. Um, in doing so, she transfers the child of Moshe into a marriage with God making him a child of God, right? So when you like, so when you think about relationship and covenant and how that covenant is created and like, look, Brit Milah, right? It's, it's a covenant. And we also talk about marriage as a covenant and how do we build and create covenant? Um, you know, d please you know, make sure when you go to the banquet hall, you know, if you're going to the circumcision or the wedding, those are definitely different life cycle events. Um, but, but when you think about ways in which we as Jews think about and create and mark covenant, those are like really two of the primary ones. 
um, and and what's happening in that moment to sort of enact that that type of covenant happening. It's still a tricky phrase. It's still not, it's still yes. Elon reads as as the title of a of a Vincent Price movie more than uh, something you're gonna see in in most books of of Jewish theology. Um, but but that's that's how I've been trying to wrap my head around it this go round. I also wonder if it brings her closer to her husband, right? Who is her groom, right. Um, right. and that there is an element there of even if it's not being done to him that this bridegroom idea is brought about because, again, we don't know that he was the one that God was after, but if she did it to save her husband, then it's possible that that bridegroom idea and connection is actually her reason for going about this circumcision and therefore is very strongly connected without um, without it being done to Moses. Could be. Could be. Yeah, Barbara. Um. Rashi says, which means thou hast brought it about that my bridegroom Moses was on the point of being killed because of thee, the the son. Thou hast been to me my husband's murderer. So the way I see that is that the serpent came to potentially kill Moses, but because Moses' son was, was, um, was served, that uh, sorry, I'm sorry, that's a physician's way of talking. Because um, the, the, the son was circed that he's that that the circumcision saved Moses's life. Barbara, that's- I'm never going to hear Cirque du Soleil the same ever again. <laughs> sorry about that. But when I was circing kids, when I was a medical student and a resident intern, that's we were circing them. We weren't circumcising them. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I lost the Rashi in the Cirque du Soleil, but um, yeah. I, 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 just, I think it connects to what I just, I think, yeah, yeah. I think that Rashi. That's where the bridegroom comes in, I think. Right. I think that Rashi and I are speaking kind of a little bit of the same language, even though I, the, the snake thing is where I lose him. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I agree that it somehow seems to be that the bridegroom is referring back to Moses and yeah. Her feel as though you know this is this is her groom to then take care of. Well, that she was circling her son to be able to save her husband's life, as exactly. far as she was concerned. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, Rabbi Shapiro, any final thoughts on this to bring us into Shabbat, so we can think about this all of Shabbos. All of Shabbos. Yeah. I- I'll, I'll just say Rabbi Schatz was so skeptical. When was it? What time did you text me last night? Being like, do you have anything to say about these verses? Cause I've got nothing. Um, <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm, I'm grateful that we have the rich textual tradition that we have. I think, I think you, you can know where a good drosh lies when you're reading through the JPS translation and, and you see the, the notation that says meaning of Hebrew uncertain, right? That's always a good tell that there's something juicy and interesting there. Um, and, and it was both verses 25 and 26 have meaning of Hebrew uncertain. So that's a, a double tell. Um, and, you know, look, it's, it's this sort of de- mythic, ambiguous, violent, d- disturbing scene. And it has opened up a conversation about ritual and relationship and gender roles and, um, you know, different parallels with other stories out of our tradition. I, I mean, it's, it's just, uh, 
it, it, it's fun. It's interesting. It's compelling. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm really grateful we get to sort of all play, play in the sandbox together with these texts. And I hope that this gives you plenty of food for thought to keep thinking about. And the one sort of thematic piece I'll, uh, that I'm, I'm kind of lingering on is, you know, when we think about covenant and when we think about relationship, hopefully in less bloody and disturbing ways, but how do we mark that? How do we create that? Um, how do we do that proactively, not in a moment of crisis, but what are the things that we proactively and meaningfully do to mark the covenanted relationship, covenanted relationships that we have? Because certainly these days we need each one of them that we got. So I hope, I hope it's a Shabbat for each of you where you feel close to the people that you have deep connections with and that nobody gets attacked by mythic snakes. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.